From St. Peter like interviewing smart people, it's nice. Christ, no, go ahead. In the middle of my intro. <laughs> Rudely interrupted. From St. Petersburg. And Brooklyn. <laughs> and Brooklyn. This is, this is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. What's up? <laughs> yeah, what is up? Who are we interviewing today? Olivia. We spoke to a really exciting guest this week, Alisa Timoshkina, uh, who is the author of a cookbook about Russian cuisine that is coming out soon. Specifically Siberian cuisine. Specifically Siberian cuisine, but it says Russia mm-hmm. on the title, Smith. It does. It's we'll true. We'll talk about it's that. Coming out in, yes, it's coming out in March. The link for pre-ordering the book will be in the description uh, on Amazon.com, and we'll let her introduce herself more thoroughly. Yeah, and um, I advise you to have some food next to you while you listen. Yeah, because <laughs> this is a mouth-watering one. <laughs> it really is. So uh, my name is Alyssa Timoshkina. I am originally from Russia, from Omsk, which is a city of Siberia. And I've lived in the UK for the past 20 years almost. Um, my background is in film studies. I did a PhD in Soviet film and history. And I've worked in various kind of film-related institutions from film festivals to production companies. And then um, about four years ago, I had a bit of a, a U-turn in my career and I started working in food, hosting supper clubs, working as a chef, and most recently I've published a cookbook about Russian food. Yeah, so I I wanted to ask about the book title. So the book is coming out in March, right? Yes. And it's called Salt and Time. Uh, yeah, it's called Salt and Time Recipes from a Russian Kitchen. Recipes from a Russian kitchen. Okay. So yeah, I mean, even just the title, like they have, I'm curious about the choice of those, yeah, those two words, like why did you pick salt and time for the title? And also curious now that I think about it, about, um, you know, your choice of saying Russian. Yeah. I don't know, like what, yeah. Um, so the main title, Salt and Time, um, well, it has several meanings. Um, it came from... Originally, um, it came from a few pop-ups that I've done here in London, uh, cooking Russian food and specifically using fermented produce. And I was quite fascinated by how um, fermentation, you know, essentially you do cook with nothing but salt and thyme. It's, you know, you just add salt to a particular vegetable and then you let time do its magic and then you know it kind of cooks in a way and you know a cabbage turns into a kraut or a cucumber you know turns into a fermented cucumber and so on and um, fermentation is quite trendy these days in the UK as well Uh, so I thought it's quite an interesting way to 
marry a very traditional old kind of dating back to middle ages tradition in Russian cuisine to something that's very trendy and popular now in London mm. and then the more I thought about it um, obviously salt and thyme are quite essential cooking ingredients in general you know how long you cook something for is quite um, important in a recipe and obviously seasoning with salt is the most essential skill you have to know as a cook and as a chef but then also in a more kind of philosophical level um, in my personal experience at time, um, you know, something that I needed to kind of reconnect with my home country. And that's what I talk about in the introduction of the book, that, you know, it took me time to kind of re-appreciate my own upbringing and kind of reconnect to the food of my own country. So time in that sense is quite a kind of beautiful poetic thing, you know, how we think about food in our childhood and all of that. And then salt also reminds me of snow and, you know, snow in Siberia is quite a beautiful sight. And so, again, in a very poetic way, it's kind of like cooking with salt and crunching salt between my fingertips kind of reminds me of walking in a, in a Siberian snow, snowscape of sorts. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, these are kind of different things that were floating around when I thought that this is a good title for the book. And then the use of Russian, obviously... Yeah, kind of when we talk about Russian food, you always want to use Russian in inverted commas because it's such a complicated um, term. Mm -hmm. To be honest, initially I wanted to use the word Siberian title, mm -hmm. which is not less complicated, to be honest. But I just thought for publishing purposes, um, for kind of marketing, Russian obviously is a more familiar term than Siberian. So the, the publisher suggested that we stick with Russian in the title and I trusted their expertise in that. Can you expand a little bit on, on what you mean by it being uh, complicated? Um, well, Russian food um, has, you know, it's a huge part of Russian cultural history and Russian cultural history is quite tricky and complicated. Um, kind of, you know, going as far back as we can go, really. Um, what is Russia has changed so much. And from kind of geopolitical sense, how the borders were shifting all the time to um, this phenomenon of Soviet history, you know, the 70 years of the Soviet regime, how they have transformed or have they transformed what we understand by Russian food. And obviously post-Soviet food these days, what is that? You know, how how can we distinguish now between Russian, Soviet, regional Siberian or something else cuisine? So I think, yeah, for a place that is as huge as Russia and has as a complex and kind of fluid history as it does, um, yeah, just using the adjective Russian, especially in relation to food, I find is always kind of needs to be said in inverted commas. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely... I, I feel that because like there are certain things that just sort of conversationally, you know, people maybe refer to as like typical Russian food or something yeah. like that. But, but as soon as you start to break it down, it's like, well, are we talking about something? Are we talking about a recipe that was like it was maybe eaten by like some particular group of people mm. pre-revolution and then it was transformed during the Soviet Union and sort of like standardized into like a recipe that's yeah. made now and and actually like yeah I mean it's I always have trouble explaining to people when some people ask me like what is Russian cuisine like what is Russian food like I'm like uh yeah. lini <laughs> I just I just yeah. say like a few dishes <laughs> that's all exactly but 
was I wanted to ask actually kind of like building on that concept of like how do we you know like where do we put the the brackets like is it or, or how do we sort of like uh choose the I don't even know if it's like a regional or a temporal or whatever way of defining um food I recently was just a friend of mine who's from Novosibirsk mm-hmm. said that uh she was like saying she wanted to teach me how to make Siberian borscht. And I was surprised because I, well, the only thing I'd heard about borscht before from Russians is that borscht is actually Ukrainian or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> and, and so I was curious if you could explain maybe like, what does that mean? And also if there are some other like Siberian specific things that are also something you would, you would encounter in other parts of the former Soviet Union. Well, to, to be honest, I'm actually quite surprised to hear that myself that there is a Siberian borscht. I've never heard of that. Um, so I might not be the best person to answer that question. But um, yeah, borscht is a really fascinating dish. Um, it's almost kind of has as complex, almost like political connotations as hummus in the Middle East. It's like... Mm-hmm. You know, every country that is part of the former kind of Soviet Union or so even broader kind of socialist bloc has a dish in one way or another similar to borscht or a version of borscht. And um, yeah, it's almost like every country claims its rights to that dish and it's our national staple. But of course, everyone cooks it so differently. And I think it almost boils down to every family rather than um, every country. Hmm. So um, I guess in my personal experience, my kind of understanding of borscht will be a bit more Ukrainian because my part of my my mom's family is from Ukraine. Um, Mm. So I guess the way they cooked borscht would be a more authentic Ukrainian way, a more kind of traditional Ukrainian way. But then actually, um, if you look at the way borscht is cooked in Ukraine, there are 101 versions of it as well. So, but I guess probably the main distinction would be that whether you use pork or beef for the stock or whether you use, make a vegetarian stock. Mm. Um, and if you add lard and garlic at the end, the way you would um, in Ukraine. And also if you use a um, sofrito, which, you know, is like a mix of uh, root vegetables um, that is fried first and then the stock is poured over it, or you just boil fresh vegetables and make this kind of non-fried, non-fatty mm. stock. Also, there's um, an Ashkenazi, so kind of Eastern European Jewish version that uses um, apple cider vinegar and sugar in it to add this kind of briny, kind of sweet and um, savory version. Sorry. Hello, <laughs> baby. She's three months. So she's but, um yeah, so I mean, there's so many different versions that, um, and you know, also you think of borscht as having beetroot as its main ingredient, but then mm-hmm. there are so many people who make borscht without beetroot. And I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Like, the more I looked into it, so actually, kind of, because I do have a recipe for borscht in my book, which is completely, it's almost kind of my own invention. Because the more I read about borscht, it's almost like this phantom that. Um, kind of haunts Slavic cooking and I was like you know what I'm just gonna create my own version and not try to kind of pretend that this is an authentic dish or try to find the recipe for borscht it's just um, yeah it's just so versatile and 
complex that you're going to kind of go insane trying to find the origin of it. <laughs> yeah, wow. What are some, you know, shifting specifically to Siberian food, what, what are some particular characteristics of Siberian food? Well, I guess one of the most popular dishes that you would know is the pilmeni, the dumplings. Again, it's quite a widespread dish that people cook all over Russia. I guess to me, what's interesting about Soviet, I mean, Siberian cuisine is this um, mix of um, Eastern European and Asian cuisines, because obviously territorially, especially where I come from in Siberia, um, it's very close to Kazakhstan. And yeah, there's lots of influences from Mongolia and China. So um, when people, or at least here in the UK, when people think of Russian food, they immediately think of Eastern European food, so very similar to Polish or um, Hungarian cuisine. But actually, if you look at food from Siberia, while well, most of Russia is is located in the East anyway, mm-hmm. um, in Asia, I mean, and um, in Siberia in particular, I find that there's a lot of um, influence from Central Asia. And I've got a very cranky baby here. <laughs> I would say that it's this kind of fusion of um, Western and Asian cuisine that's quite specific to Siberian cooking. Could you give like a concrete example? Like, is that like in the fact in more use of, I don't know, fish or something? Or I guess fish is everywhere in Russia. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's local. Obviously, there's local produce as well, like local fish and stuff. Um, but um, I guess it's just the use of, but maybe it's also part of the Soviets' influence that, you know, the use of uh, spices from uh, Central Asia, like Tajikistan and um, Kazakhstan and all those places. Um, and also in my personal kind of family history, my dad's family is from the Far East, from Khabarovsk. So it's kind of bordering with China. So we always had like soy sauce and ferns which is quite a specific well as i found out here that ferns are not really known as a culinary ingredient it's just Mm. a plant or you know a wild thing that grows in the woods um but i'm i grew up eating kind of brined ferns that's um influence from korean and chinese cuisine that came Mm. kind of via the russian far east into my family so in my kind of, I can't speak for the whole of <laughs> Siberia, but in my personal family, um, kind of mainly, it's definitely kind of this addition of um, both Central Asian, but also kind of Far Eastern Chinese and um, Korean flavors. Interesting. Okay. Well, so, okay. So my question is based on an interview or like a video you did for your Kino Vinal. Um and you were talking about your childhood memories that involve food being about being sort of based in the kitchen and being um, surrounded by these three generations of women, your your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother. Yeah. And, yeah, and I wanted, I just wanted to hear more about that, I guess. Sure. And was wondering if you could give, like, some details of what kind of foods were they preparing, yeah. And... Um, well... Yeah, kind of for me, the memory of growing up um, is pretty much all sets in the kitchen because in the Soviet apartments, not only you shared it with your grandparents and in my, my case, my great grandmother, 
but also there was no such thing really as a living room kind of all the rooms were bedrooms essentially so um the kitchen was the space for socializing it was the place where you would kind of hang out and chat and cook and spend most of your time really um kind of do your homework and stuff um so yeah the kitchen was the heart of the flat and this is where we you know spend most of, of our time yeah and it's been quite amazing to have that experience of uh, being brought up by my great grandmother who was born in 1912 um and she died only 10 or so years ago so she's lived this amazing long life and witnessed so many fascinating things firsthand you know the stuff that we learn from history books so i had this very kind of close connection to her and heard all this mind-blowing stories of her um, experiencing the revolution and surviving the holocaust in ukraine and escaping the nazis um going to siberia and so on and the food that um, she actually was also um a chef well i mean it sounds very grand to say a chef i mean she worked in like soviet canteens and stuff so it wasn't anything mm. fancy but i mean she worked in food for a living so it's quite a um, interesting wow. to kind of how you know i'm doing that as well now but she she's no longer around to know that <laughs> so we have that kind of extra connection there as well um i mean her food was very simple yeah she was from ukraine so the borscht that she made was a bit more traditional ukrainian if we can say it <laughs> and um she also um made lots of pastries and kind of like well now i figure it was jewish but back in the soviet days you didn't really openly embrace jewishness and didn't really differentiate that much between the you know jewish food or soviet food so she would make like poppy seed buns which are more like um babkas or rugula and um yeah i mean her cooking was very simple but very hearty and very like just good quality kind of standard soviet stuff um yeah i remember there were lots of fermenting jars um for some reason i really remember how uh, my mom and my gran were trying to ferment some cucumbers but the jars kept exploding so we had like a <laughs> a row of jars covered with a duvet i think it's something about preserving the right temperature but then you know there was ex- they kept exploding under that duvet um which was kind of kind of a surreal childhood memory and the other really special memory that i have from my great grandma um was when she was making um the traditional kulich bread for easter and it's quite a doughy yeasty bread that needs um lots of proving overnight so she would she had this um very like almost religious attitude to bread i guess people lots of people of that generation who survived horrors like the holocaust and the second world war they had this um approach very respectful approach to bread so whenever she would make dough she would actually always put on fresh clothes and she would start kneading the dough so it was like a really beautiful ceremony and yeah i remember like waking up one night and seeing her putting on a white robe and then going into the kitchen and then i kind of sneaked behind her and i saw her kneading the dough and it was kind of flowing out of the massive casserole that she had for the oh day so to a kid's view that was like the most mystical kind of magical thing so yeah i have like with really special memories of her and that um little soviet apartment kitchen that we shared i i was just thinking about like the influx of people to siberia like your family kind of immigrated there people moved there for work people were forced to migrate there um how did that affect the cuisine of the area 
Well, exactly. I think that's one of the key factors that makes Siberian cuisine quite interesting is exactly that kind of um, history of migration for various reasons that you've just named. Yeah, so many people pass through the region, kind of moving from the Far East closer to the West and vice versa. So it's a real kind of um, melting pot of different culinary influences. And there's so many kind of historical, you know, kind of important historical moments that are rooted in there. And again, it's quite interesting that obviously in the West, when you think of Siberia, you immediately see gulags, and um, which, you know, it is true, but um, you kind of don't think that because of that, even though it was a traumatic history, and obviously um, exile was, you know, there before the Soviet regime as well. Um, because of that, there was a lot of movement of people, and it actually did create a very fascinating kind of tapestry of different food cultures. Another thing that I haven't really explored in depth in the book, but obviously merits a lot of attention, is the food of the indigenous people who don't get much attention in, or kind of much acknowledgement in Russian popular culture. But um, that would be quite an interesting thing to look at. I mean, I have one one dish in the book that originates from indigenous Soviet communities. Um, it's called straganina. It's like raw fish. It's called, I call it Siberian sashimi. It's a raw fish um, that's shaved very thinly, but it's served frozen. And mm. then you have it with different condiments like um, horseradish cream, pickled onions, um, salt, like quite coarse sea salt. And it's a perfect chaser for vodka because it has this, you know, just the sensation of that melting fish in your mouth. It's absolutely incredible. And um, it's one of the dishes that is actually becoming really popular in Russia these days, and you actually have like straganina bars, which are kind of like sushi bars, I guess, and it's all very kind of trendy and fashionable. But <sighs> it's quite interesting to think that it's actually taken from the indigenous communities in Siberia and made quite popular all over Russia. That reminds me of, or talking about like cold meat reminds me of, um, I'm blanking, what's the name of the like jellied meat dish? Oh, khaladets. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Which I see translated as aspic. Aspic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So yeah, for <laughs> that's the that's the translation. Um, I, yeah, I'm. I just am curious. So like, we're talking about we're talking about all of this this variation and these like various influences, which of course exist. But then we have like, the Soviet era does work to you know like standardized recipes yeah. even if it's just you know in the sense of like having what you said like can the canteens or um something like I, I i do want to talk about this like cookbook that when i was reading about the history of food i was hearing a lot about this cookbook fascinating uh, yeah from 1936 that yeah i don't know can you can you maybe speak to some of the the transformations that happened to like a dish like haladets, or it doesn't have to be that one. What are some of the dishes that maybe like were there before and were transformed during the Soviet era or were created during the Soviet era that we can point to? Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite fascin a fascinating thing. And um, I find it really bizarre how in Russia, lots of chefs or people kind of working with food, I mean, see the Soviet regime is obviously a horrible thing and they say oh it's completely disfigured russian cuisine and we need to revive russian cuisine 
um, I find it quite unhealthy, to be honest, to kind of deny whole almost a century of Russian history and, well, essentially almost world history. You know, it's such a huge phenomenon that affected the world in so many ways. And just pretend that it never happened and kind of go back to Tsarist times and, you know, take the cuisine from there. Um, and again, even then, you know, Tsarist cuisine was very much influenced by French cuisine anyway. So it's quite interesting how people are kind of in on this wild goose chase for authentic Russian cuisine instead of just embracing the whole fascinating aspect of how you know mixed and complex Russian cuisine really is so to me Soviet cuisine is very fascinating and the whole Soviet regime is I'm a bit kind of obsessed with it <laughs> so kind of generally speaking before the revolution uh, food was very class-based um, I have a very interesting cookbook which was written in 18, I can't remember the exact date, but like 1895 or something like that. Um, wow. it's, um, it's, it's kind of like the Stalinist cookbook version of the Tsarist Times. It's another quite big influential cookbook. And it was written by Yelena Malachavietz and it's called oh, yeah. um, something like, um, it's like an advice for the housewife. So it's not just about, it's not just the recipes, but it's also advice on how to, um, set the a table gift. and yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's a gift to the housewife. It's called thing. a gift to housewife. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I have that book. Um, unfortunately, my wow. kind of um, tsarist era Russian is not very good, so I couldn't understand half of it. It's written in the old <laughs> language, but um, and it's huge. It's like in very small font, so it's like it's almost like a massive dictionary. But from from what I did understand, it was very clear that the food was extremely class-based. You know, these are the dishes for this kind of people and these are the dishes for, you know, that kind of class. And, you know, ask your servant to bring up the pickles from the basement. That kind, you know, that kind of references mm. obviously kind of makes um, cooking very uh, divided and, you know, segregated. Um, so one of the things that the Soviets did obviously do away with class and that translated into the cooking practices mainly by using existing dishes uh, which were often based in French cuisine or kind of invented by the French chefs who came to work for the Russian Tsars and just uh, simplifying them because obviously as I think you mentioned also in your podcast uh, uh, episode about uh, Stalovy that um, you know how Soviets had to feed a huge um, nation all of a sudden kind of create this very uniform menu that would be administered to certain, you know, people of certain professions and so on. So it's a very interesting kind of how you engineer a whole new diet for this massive population, which is so ethnically mixed as well. And I mean, they tried really hard. So, you know, they created very rigid rules and um, recipes and then all these canteens, Stalovy, that opened around the country, well, the country, the Soviet Union. Um, they had very specific set menus. Um, and obviously lots of those were borrowed from pre-revolutionary cuisine. So for example, um, vinaigrette, which is a salad, um, and it's still a very popular salad um, all over the former Soviet Union. Essentially, it was a dish created by the French, as you can tell from its name. Um, it was a dish of uh, finely diced cold game or some kind of a meat and different root vegetables and then it was dressed with the french vinaigrette dressing but the way um, it was simplified for the soviet palate um, was to get rid of the meat obviously to make it cheaper and then do away with the french dressing and instead of that use pickled gherkins and sauerkraut so that kind of tanginess and sharpness that you would get from the 
vinegar and the vinaigrette dressing came naturally from the fermented vegetables. And actually, in my view, I think it's a much better recipe because the fermented mm. uh, fermented vegetables do have a, a lot more complex kind of flavor profile. So that's um, that's one example. And then the other thing that I find really fascinating, um, and that kind of links to your question about that famous Stalinist cookbook is that before the great terror of the 30s or like late 30s there was actually a lot of friendship between well kind of cultural dialogue let's say between the Soviet Union and the states lots of filmmakers went um went to Hollywood to kind of study how you know films are made on a mass scale and kind of gather experience there and also um famous member of the Soviet party, Anastas Mikoyan, who was a mm-hmm. kind of commissar of food, basically. He was the guy who <laughs> created the, you know, created the whole new palette for the Soviet people. Um, he went over to the States as well to study how um, kind of fast food, really, how fast food is made. And um, he brought back the idea of a patty, katleta, which is, you know, it's a patty that goes into a burger. But kind of, I forgot why, but kind of somehow along the way, all the other elements got lost, but katleta, the actual patty, remained. And it became the most staple Soviet thing that people would eat, again, regardless of if it's at home or in a canteen, katleta would always be on the menu. And... um, you know, he also got the recipe for ketchup, which did not actually translate to the Soviet market after all. Um, so, yeah, it's really fascinating how, you know, when you think, yeah, the, you know, the Soviet cuisine is one thing. But actually, if you look at it, it's um, it has roots in the States. It has roots in um, Taris cuisine, which in turn has roots in French cuisine. So it's, yeah, just the complexity of it's like this... Um, kind of a maze that you keep looking at and you know the more you look into it the more fascinating stuff you find I just yeah I would I'd like to look through that Stalinist book because because it was also like a I mean it was taking from different sources but it was also kind of like an etiquette book right yeah like it also yeah. had sort of like this is how you should set your table and this, yeah I don't know I was reading about how it like had um this kind of embrace this more Stalinist uh, ideology of like slightly of just sort of a better life like slightly bourgeoisie as opposed to like the more ascetic mm. beginnings of the Soviet Union yeah. which are more like you know minimalist because yeah I mean I saw some of the pictures there's like oh they're amazing overflowing yeah. fruit bowls and like <laughs> <laughs> like really nice white linen napkins and stuff yeah. when I was reading about this book uh the the authors of the articles I was reading made the impression that like everybody had it and it was like this culinary bible yeah was that your personal experience oh absolutely yeah I have one that belongs to my great-grandma and so the book had lots of different editions the first one was in 36 or something like that Uh, that's the one that still featured references to the to Mikoyan's trip to the west to the states and had the cornflakes and ketchup recipes and then fascin- you know it's so fascinating how just by studying this one book you can kind of study Russian history in a way well Soviet history because the book had the different edition in the um, 1952 after the Stalinist the first Stalinist era after the second world war and after the last purges of the late 40s early 50s when you know Stalin went completely paranoid and there was a huge anti-Semitic purge, so lots of references to Jewish cuisine were actually emitted from the book. And then the book continued to be reprinted in the 60s and 70s, and again, so many different things kept changing 
according to mm. the political climate. So the version that my family has is the one of um, 1952, and that's kind of the peak of Soviet kind of um, yeah madness and. Um, the ideology of like you know Soviets are the best people in the world and it's very funny how um, it has a the introduction talks about how people in the west are starving to death and um, you know there's so much unemployment because of alcohol consumption you know just complete nonsense yeah I mean how is that relevant to a cookbook it's you know it's just really funny how they would <laughs> literally you know put in anti-western messages anywhere you know anywhere they could yeah so that book um yeah, it was around in my family for, well, since the 50s. And some of the pages are torn out because apparently when my mom was little, she loves certain table setups. So she like tore them out of the book and then played with them kind of with her dolls, <laughs> pretending it's for some, you know, her dinner table and stuff. Wow. And then they're like images of uh, green peas that are crossed out because my mom hated green peas. So she just like <laughs> wrote with a pen all over them. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a very funny how like, you know, in each family, the book is kind of a, has a history of its family written on it as well, which is quite sweet. Yeah, so when I was writing my cookbook, I obviously looked through this Stalinist cookbook and um, I, I haven't actually used any of the recipes. It's just more of a touchstone that you have to mention and kind of have to acknowledge because literally pretty much every Soviet uh, person has a story about this book in one way or another. How was the book delivered? Like, would you go pick it up at a central location or they would mail it to you? I actually have no idea. <laughs> I'd imagine um, <laughs> I'd imagine bookshops would be... Yeah, I think you would buy it. Yeah. yeah. Just like people did do that, I guess. Yeah, I think... Like a lot of people. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about like farming. I, I realize I actually know very little about farming in Russia, um, but in my head I think that I assumed a lot of it happens maybe in Siberia just because like then the analogy in the U.S. is like a lot of the farming happens in the Midwest where there's a lot of space is that true does farming happen in Siberia I'm not sure but I would imagine um because of the crazy cold probably a bit it's a bit more tricky to um have massive farms um yeah, the climate is not the most favorable, but I mean, yeah. where I come from, obviously, you know, there are so many farms and villages around the main city and um, there's a meat factory in Omsk and a dairy factory. So, yeah, it's kind of like a local, there is lots of local farming and um, lots of produce comes from the nearby um, villages and farms. Um, but i I mean, to be honest, I'm not an expert on this at all, but um, my feeling is that probably more farming would happen in the western part where the climate is a bit milder. Mm. And yeah, and it's just interesting um, that since the whole um, food sanctions uh, madness, um, in a weird way, it kind of had a positive effect on Russian farming in a way that, you know, the goods that used to be imported um, are actually now, you know, they have to be made locally. And um, apparently there's like a whole new trend for making like mozzarella and burrata and all those Italian cheeses that are no longer available directly from Italy. So Russian farmers have to kind of think on their feet and invent uh, their own equivalents, which apparently are really delicious. I haven't tried them myself, but I've heard some some really good things about it so it's yeah it's very interesting how you know 
kind of recent uh, political events have, you know, are affecting Russian farming now and how, you know, maybe in a few years, Borat will be considered a traditional Russian <laughs> cheese and <laughs> you never know. So, yeah, it's fascinating to see it kind of in the happening right now. It's a good question about farming smith because I, I would think that in the Soviet era, like, or I'm pretty sure main the main farming areas were like Ukraine and Belarus because yeah South, yeah definitely you know yeah yeah whatever breadbasket whatever you call it um and now I mean there there's lots of southern territory in Russia so I mean so- southwestern yeah yeah well that's yeah that's kind of my thinking as well that it's probably all happening on the borders of the former Soviets you know like Ukraine and Belarus the more fertile lands um yeah I mean there's all the kind of yeah southwestern parts of Russia. It's in, yeah, and the whole cheese thing. Cheese is such a like political thing <laughs> for Russia right now because when I first moved here, it was just the beginning of the sanctions, and the like lack of imported cheese was like the thing that people talked about. Um, <laughs> and how how do you find the situation now? I mean, I mean, it's still it's still the case that like there is like a much more limited selection or you have to um something like mozzarella that's like produced here isn't cheap it's like overpriced compared to how i don't know compared to the states for example um and i mean now that you said that i i I feel like i should try it again but there's definitely also i've definitely had like russian-made mozzarella and other sort of cheeses from italy and france and uh or like remakes of those cheeses and i mean generally they're just they're, they aren't as good in my experience yeah. <laughs> that's my experience yeah i'm not but, surprised <laughs> but it's like because it's like yeah this is it's you know a practice that you can't learn in like four years or something yeah exactly. um, yeah but yeah maybe i i also do think that people I mean, at least I personally and, like, my friends, like, we, maybe we'll just, like, not buy that cheese at all. So it's, like, we don't even have that much experience with it because we'll just mm-hmm. only buy, like, you know, really basic Russian cheese that that is, like, cheap. And then when we go abroad somewhere, we'll buy cheese and bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, still the, that's still the case. Yeah. Because, yeah, because, like, that's one of the foods that – the imported foods that is the most notable. Though there's lots – like, beef is also a big one. Mm. Um that I think like I don't know where, where they were importing beef from, but it but it was. I like, think it's Argentina. Yeah. They've got some kind of okay. special oh, deal with yeah. So, but it it does seem like in the past it does seem like there's more than there was in like 2014, 15. Uh, there's like more of a selection of of like Russian made cheeses or something like that or other things. Like it's not as bleak as it was. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really fascinating to see kind of in a long term how this is going to change the face of Russian cooking, if it will. Yeah, and, yeah, and just an industry and stuff. I mean, I, I wonder, like, I mean, it's obviously like the country's losing a lot of money from being under sanction. But as you said, there are these like, yeah. benefits of having sort of like domestically made stuff uh, be increased. And I guess, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Hmm. Yeah, I think that we're we're getting close. We wanted to ask you to pick a few of your favorite dishes from the forthcoming book and just like describe uh, what they are, <laughs> what the process of cooking them is. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, 
Well, <laughs> I guess, um, yeah, I probably should say that the whole book, um, kind of the style of the food that I present in the book, um, it's not just family recipes, but uh, most of it is kind of adapted to, I guess, kind of contemporary modern style of cooking that I picked up myself by living in London and cooking in London. Um, so I, if someone is um, really into traditional Russian food, they might open the book and be like, what the hell is that? Because it doesn't look anything like the traditional food. And I absolutely hate this kind of aesthetic of Russian and Soviet cuisine, you know, this crystal balls with mayo and ornate wooden spoons. And like, I literally have not seen a single Russian cookbook that doesn't have that. And it's just just so tiring and so unnecessary. No one actually eats like that in Russia anyway. So aesthetically, the book is very different and I kind of make it. There is a bit of a touch of kind of vintage, um, authentic vintage tableware from my family, but lots of it is kind of contemporary ceramics made in East London and that kind of stuff as mm -hmm. well. So it's I find it's quite a fascinating kind of eclectic mix that makes the food a lot more, just visually a lot more interesting and appealing. Mm -hmm. um, and also in terms of the flavor of the food, um, I went through all the kind of different... Um, uh, cookbooks, my family, kind of notebooks with recipes. Um, and again, using kind of traditional flavors, but maybe presenting them, kind of mixing them in a different way or getting rid of mayo was quite a big <laughs> mission of mine because, yeah, it's like, you know, Soviet cuisine is notorious for literally every dish has mayonnaise in it, which is just obscene. Um, so, and you know, there are lots of really good produce within this dish that would actually stand out a lot more if you get rid of the mayo. Um, so for example, like one of, you know, an example of that kind of dish would be, um, a very traditional Soviet, uh, New Year's Eve salad, which is a uh, beef and horseradish boiled vegetables, and it's all dressed in mayo. And obviously that was done because you can never get good quality beef. Um, so you, you know, you can't just have beef on its own. It has to be kind of masked in mayo. So I turned that into a main dish of just a really nice, good quality steak. And then the whole kind of celeriac horseradish element is turned into a, like a French remoulade that goes on the side of it. And it's quite a kind of really kind of monochrome, very nice looking dish. And then you get to taste the, the meat separately. And then you have the dressing on the side, which has a bit of mayo, but also creme fraiche. So it's a lot more kind of vibrant and zingy. And obviously the horseradish gives it a nice punch. Then another classic Soviet New Year's dish, uh, herring, herring in furs, herring under fur coat, whichever mm -hmm. you know, way you translate it. I think the ingredients themselves taste fantastic, but um, I find the presentation quite um, horrid. <laughs> you don't um, like so layers of fish and mayonnaise? <laughs> it just looks like a ginormous kind of cake made out of mayo and, yeah. and is the you know the way egg egg and beetroot kind of color each other and it just kind of turns into this weird um bloody mess and yeah just <laughs> i just find it really weird so i pulled it apart and just uh, made a very nice kind of baby pink dressing separately and then um you know you have every element on the plate which is arranged very nicely and then you kind of put the dressing on top and it looks really pretty and it has like you know you can serve it as a almost like an amuse-bouche beginning of the meal kind of dish so that's um that's another way um, um another dish that i quite like and it's like couldn't be more simple to make is a 
while it's based on this tradition of you know greeting your guests with salt and bread and that's like an old old slavic tradition that no one actually practices anymore but it's still kind of part of a culinary language when you say someone gave you a salt and bread welcome like mm-hmm. actually but i was wanting to mention that about the title i, I was thinking of that that's another all thing. right well there you go yeah that's another association yeah <laughs> um so i made these kind of canapé crostini with rye bread and um and then you make a dill butter kind of whipped butter with mm. fresh dill and then grilled spring onions and fresh radish and again like radish and butter is a great combination which um is quite popular in Russian and Ukrainian cuisine, I believe. So again, you know, and it looks lovely and it's very kind of fresh and vibrant and super simple to make and has a bit of history into Russian food, but also has a very contemporary, um, elegant look about it. And it's the first recipe in the book. So I think it's quite a nice way to open the book with that mm. particular recipe because it kind of encapsulates what the whole book is about and kind of shows you my approach to to cooking and to food in this particular book. Okay, that's the episode. Thanks for listening. As always, be sure to support us on Patreon. As always, god damn it. Um yeah, we're we're patreon.com slash we're also honestly if this is a tack on thing and we should probably do a better job of advertising this but if you are a russian to english translator and you want a little extra work on the side and you have good rates uh it emails at she's in russia at gmail.com because we have a lot of um audio that needs to be translated so basically you'd be listening to russian conversations between Lily and somebody else and then translating it into English typed um and it sucks for Lily to have to do it all herself so we're looking to hire somebody for a little bit of light work so if that's something you're interested in yeah hit us up at she's in Russia gmail.com and this loops back to Patreon because if you support us on Patreon you'll help pay this person that we're going to hire eventually uh what else? Uh, follow us on Twitter and Telegram at She's in Russia. Subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at She'sInRussia.com. And we will see you next week. I'm hungry. <laughs>